Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 22. Now if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, If we hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is the word of the Lord the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus, to die for our sins. And we thank you that you raised him from the dead. And Father, we pray now for Tom as you, as he brings the message, that you will speak through him and that your Holy Spirit will speak to each heart of, the per- of each person here. We thank you that your word will not return unto you void but it goes and it accomplishes your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. You'll see I added a a subtitle to this one. If Christ has not been raised, that's the actual quote that keeps coming up in this passage. But the, the focus in this passage is the necessity, certainty, and reach of Christ's resurrection. I want to show you kind of where we've been in chapter 15 and where we're going. The highlighted part there is where we are are this morning. Uh, The last couple of weeks in in the first 11 verses of the chapter, we saw the gospel of the crucified, buried, and resurrected Christ, and then also that he he appeared to many. Uh, There were two parts that we addressed. One is that the gospel is good news and clear news. And actually the title I had was the gospel is clear news. And then secondly, the gospel is old news. It's very old news. It's been around as long as God has been talking to to, uh, his image bearers. He's been talking about the long promised Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This morning, we're going to move further into the chapter and we're going to see what Paul has to say about what would be true of Christianity if Christ has not been raised. And then we have two more messages after this in this same chapter. The next one is the believer's resurrection grid here and now, how the resurrection affects the way that we view things and understand things now. And then finally, what our resurrection actually changes. And Paul is going to have an awful lot to say about that in verses 34 to 58, what actually happens when we are raised from the dead. 
In chapter 13, we saw that love is the sine qua non, the without which not of every believer's usefulness and significance. Paul made it clear, speaking in the first person, he essentially said, whatever my spiritual gifts are, however much knowledge or faith or even charity that I have, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. Here in this chapter, there's another sine qua non, but it's actually more far-reaching than the one that we saw in chapter 13 because the, the without which not that Paul presents here in, in the verses we're looking at this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus is the sine qua non of the entire Christian faith. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, Christianity is useless. Actually, it's worse than that. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, all of us who have fixed our hope on Jesus only in this life are most to be pitied. That's very strong language. And Paul intends for it to get our attention. Paul is responding to a problem in the church at Corinth that he, he raises in verse 12. And that is that some among them, some who had come in and into their midst, into their community, were declaring that there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. Now at this point, when he, when he makes that statement, he's not specifically talking about the resurrection of Christ. He's talking about resurrection at all. If you read the Gospels, you see that the Sadducees, there were two, two sects in the leadership of the Jewish, of the Jewish religion, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees flatly did not in, in any way, shape, or form. When your body, they believe when your body dies, that's it, okay, for the body. Uh, but they didn't have a monopoly. The, Jew, the Sadducees didn't have a monopoly on disbelieving any notion of a resurrection because within the Greco-Roman culture, the, uh, the dualistic teaching of philosophers like Plato had, had taken a very strong hold in the thinking of many people in many different sects and groups. And that dualism said that, that the spiritual realm and the physical realm are completely separate. What goes on in one doesn't affect the other. And, and what had happened is that that many people, not just some Jews, but many people throughout the Roman Empire believed that the idea of persistence of the physical realm and of the body, it was irrelevant, didn't matter. And it didn't happen. There was no resurrection. Now, Paul takes that, that issue that, that was present in the culture and he, said, he, he goes from the lesser to the greater. And in verse 13, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He does the same thing again in verse 15, and he does the same thing in verse 16. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then he uses that as the, the launch point for everything else that he says. Every single one of the consequences to us that he raises in this passage ties back to whether Christ has been raised. Not whether there's a resurrection in the broad sense, but whether Christ has been raised. See, the real issue is not bodily resurrection in some broad sense. It is the resurrection of one person, Jesus, 
that determines whether Christianity stands or falls. Paul's approach here is actually a little disconcerting. It's kind of the equivalent of a military commander just before a major battle going to the military commander of the opposing side and handing him a map. And on that map shows the location of that first commander's command post, of all of his officers, of his armory, of his ammo, and of all of his supplies. It's like, it's like, it's like before the battle starts, one goes to the other and he says, you want to know how to destroy us? You want to know how to, how to end this quickly? Here you go. Now, Paul, of course, has a really good foundation for, for showing all his cards at this point. He's very confident about where he's headed here. <laughs> Debbie and I, several years ago, we had, the, we had a very interesting evening with a dinner guest. He was a Jewish scholar and writer. He was a zealous and very prolific writer as a, a Jewish apologist against Christianity. And he had written a 900-page book, the focus of which was entirely to debunk the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I talked to him for several hours, sat on the sofa in our, in our den, and I have to say, uh, at best, his arguments were toothless. Um, but his strategy, his strategy was spot on. See, he understood very well that in order to do away with Christianity, you just had to do one thing. You had to do away with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he spent 900 pages trying to do that. It wasn't very good. By the way, it's very interesting that at the time that he came and visited us, he was back. We met him because he came to the DTS library to get materials. And my wife works at the DTS library, right? He was in the process of writing an addendum to that book to prove that Isaiah 53 is not talking about the substitutionary sacrifice of Messiah, that it's talking instead about some good Jews dying for some bad Jews. Doesn't work very well since it says, who is considered that it says that the, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, he died. Okay. Anyway, we had a good conversation, but. Mm, as I say, the thing that I could, would commend him for is he got the strategy right. No resurrection of Christ, no Christianity. And that's exactly where Paul goes here. <laughs> he doesn't pull any punches, and what he presents, the picture that he presents of Christianity, if you remove the resurrection of Christ, is not pretty. The first epic failure that Paul identifies if Jesus has not been raised from the dead is that our preaching is empty. It is useless. And I believe that the, the word our here, Paul is, it, it, right after that he says, your faith is in vain, but he says, our preaching is useless. I think since he just talked about all those who had seen the resurrected Christ, and we're now talking about that, I, he's saying our preaching of the gospel, of, of what we saw as, our, as witnesses to Christ, it's all useless. Now that still abides to anyone at any point in any age who preaches the gospel of Christ. If Christ is not raised from the dead, that preaching is, is useless. The second thing that he says kind of takes it, it, anti, it ups the ante, it, it makes things a lot worse. And that is, 
not only is our preaching useless, but we are false witnesses against God. We are false witnesses against God. And again, I think from Paul's perspective, he's saying, I and Peter and the disciples and all those 500 plus people who saw the resurrected Christ who are now talking about this, he said, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're lying. And we are, we are including God in our lie. We're perpetuating a falsehood on God's behalf. We're bearing false witness against God. That's not a good thing to do. The third thing that Paul points out that, uh, that fails horribly about Christianity, if Christ is not indeed raised from the dead, is that your faith is empty. It's worthless. And the word vain, uh, Paul first used the phrase, uh, if you believed in vain, or unless you believed in vain, back in verse 2. Unless you believed in vain. And that was right, in the, right at the beginning of, before he laid out what the gospel is. And he said, this is what I preached to you. This is what you believed. And this is how you were saved, unless you believed in vain. And at that point, he doesn't explain what would constitute believing in vain. Well, now he does. Here's what would constitute believing in vain, and that is believing the gospel of Jesus Christ if Jesus is not raised from the dead. Your faith would be worthless, useless, empty. And instead of the, uh, instead of the unfathomable riches of Christ that belong to every child of God, you'd have nothing. You would have a bunch of promises that don't mean anything. But it's worse than that. It's worse than that. He, ante, he ups the ante again. And he says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. Your sins are still on your shoulders, not on Christ. This is the same Paul who said in Romans 3.23 and 6.23, what we, kind of two of the key points that we believe we must tell others when we're sharing the gospel. First is, all human beings have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all violated the character of God in ways, in more ways, in more profound ways than we will ever comprehend. And we still do. Romans 6.23 tells us what we earned by that sin by that, that violation of the character of God. It says the wages of sin is death. There's a common, and then but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But here, the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. That's what we deserve from God. And that death is not merely the death of the physical body. It is an eternal separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 and it is an eternity in the lake of fire and brimstone, Revelation 20. Counting on eternal blessings that we are never going to receive would be bad enough. But the reality here is not as benign as that if Christ has not been raised from the dead. The reality is, if Christ wasn't raised, what awaits us is not merely the absence of eternal blessing, it is the certainty of eternal blessing judgment. And that applies, Paul says, not just to us, 
to us who are alive today, but it applies to everyone who came before us who has ever believed in the gospel promises of God in Christ. He says, uh, you're still in your sins and all who died in Christ, all who, the wording of course is all who are asleep in Christ, they're still condemned. They've perished. Their bodies have died and, and they, they still stand condemned along with all the rest of us. <laughs> we all are either in Adam or we are in Christ. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But if we're in Adam, which is how we all start out, we're condemned. The, the world doesn't like, they rarely even hear this, including from Christians. But the Bible is very clear on it. Paul's very clear on it in Romans chapter 5 that, that we all start out in Adam and, and we all start out condemned. We don't start on God's good side and then we mess up and end up on his bad side. That's not how this works. We start out condemned and Christ has to save us in order for us to move from the darkness to the light, from death to life. So if, if Christ is not raised, guess what we all get from God? We get what we deserve. A lot of people are very big on demanding what they deserve, but they don't really want it if they know what they deserve. God tells us, you know, praise God he hasn't left us to bop around in the dark trying to figure out what's true. He's told us, here's what you deserve. Death, eternal condemnation. If, if your gospel doesn't include that, see, the, the Holy Spirit came into the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. If you're not talking about those three things when you share the gospel, sin and righteousness and judgment and redemption in Christ alone, your message isn't the one that God intends to be, to be sharing. We talked about that when, when we went through what it means that Christ died for our sins. All right, if Christ is not raised, we all get from God what we deserve. Now, it wasn't the resurrection of Jesus that paid our sin debt to God, right? It wasn't the resurrection that paid the penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven. It was the death of Jesus. It, it was while Jesus was hanging on the cross that he uttered the words, it is finished. And Colossians 2 says, that when that, on that day, the certificate of debt, the of decrees against us was nailed to his cross and we don't bear it anymore. It's gone. That happened when Jesus died. That's when, that's when he secured the, re, the redemption of everyone who believes in him. Now, so why is his resurrection necessary for our salvation? Again, it's a question that many Christians would struggle to answer, but the answer's very important. In Romans 1 verse 4, Paul said, he said that Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. Okay? And it says he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was proclaimed to be 
who the prophets declared him to be, who God the Father declared him to be, who the Holy Spirit declared him to be, who Jesus himself declared him to be. He was proven to be the Lord of glory, the Son of God, when God raised him from the dead. He had the Son of God whose rightful place was at the right hand of the Father had to be raised from the grave and he had to ascend back into heaven if he was who he was claimed to be. All right. The gospel message is that the Christ, the long-promised Messiah, the Son of God, died in our place according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to many. His resurrection is the final proof that he is all that and that he did what he came to do. The second part of this answer to why his resurrection is necessary for our, our salvation, I believe, is, is manifest in Isaiah 53, that chapter that we've talked an awful lot about, uh, especially last week. It is, that chapter is the greatest passage on substitutionary atonement in the whole Bible. And it was written 700 years before Christ came, and it was looking forward to what he would come and accomplish. In verses 10 and 11 of that passage, it says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, the suffering servant, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, God says, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. By raising Christ from the grave on the third day, God was declaring payment received and accepted. He was satisfied. <laughs> the prolonging of the days of Jesus after his death was, it was God's stamp of approval on, on his guilt offering in our place. So, <laughs> if he hadn't been raised from the dead, our sin wouldn't have been dealt with. That satisfactory payment would not have been, been made. All right. Uh, verse 19 is very, very powerful. It sort of sums up what Paul is saying, but, but I think it goes another, uh, to another level. It says, and this is my translation. I'll, I'll say real quick, the interpreters and translators, put the, they take the word only in this verse and they stick it all over in different places in the verse. And you're not sure what it applies to. I'm going to read you as close to a literal rendering of the Greek without smoothing anything out as I can get. If in this life, and this is the sequence of the words, if in this life we have been those who hoped in Christ only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So the point is, we spent our life hoping, only, hoping in Christ and just Him. You got it? Okay, so that's, it's pretty simple, really. We spent our, if we spent our life hoping in just Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. Hmm. How many of you have heard Christians say before, well, if it turns out we're wrong, we still were in a better position. We had a better life than the people who didn't believe in Jesus. Anybody ever heard that? 
Some of you may have said it. I'm not trying to beat, beat anybody to death here, but, but that's wrong. Paul says, Paul says, no, that's not how this is going to work. If we're wrong, we are of all human beings most to be pitied. Why is it that so many Christians see Christianity as an advantage even if Christ didn't, didn't come, even if they're wrong? because Christ wasn't raised from the dead. Why is that? I believe it has to do with that thing about hoping only in Christ. I think a lot of Christians don't live that way. Uh, I think many of us put our hope in a whole lot of things, and Christ is just kind of added to the package. And if it turns out we're wrong, well, at least we got the benefits of community we got the benefits of maybe not going through some of the very self-destructive behaviors that the world engages in because we had this standard that we were that, that you know was imposed on us or whatever <laughs> that we that we embraced. There are whole, there's a long list of things that people mention as advantages here, but Paul says no. You know what? If if Christ is not raised from the dead, your life is pathetic. In 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what that is? That is a call to battle. It's a call to battle. Gird up your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. And here's how you, here's how you prosecute the battle. You fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ so that your hope is fixed nowhere else. Nowhere else. Because that's the hope that does not disappoint. Every other hope disappoints. Every other hope is misplaced. <laughs> so what Paul is saying is, you know what? If you live your life as a Christian the way God intends for you to live it, your life's even more pathetic if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And if Paul knew whereof he spoke, right? Read 2 read Corinthians 11 and look at what Paul's life was like. Beaten repeatedly with 39 lashes. A lot of people die from one episode of that. He's left in the ocean treading water for a day and a half. He was beaten and left for dead multiple times. He, was, he, had, he had threats from animals, threats from thieves, threats from from all kinds of different angles. And that was what his life was like. And then how did his life end? Well, he had his head removed in Rome for standing firm on the gospel, for fixing his hope entirely and only on his Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. That's, that's what the Christian life is supposed to be for all of us. If our hope is only in Christ during our short, short time on this earth as believers. Our lives will be laid down for him. We will die daily for Christ. And that'll take all kinds of different forms. Whether you go to the other side of the world or, or you serve Christ right here, you will die daily for the sake of Christ. Now, the, what I'm saying is that I think the reason that so many Christians have trouble with Paul saying that your life is, is pitiful if Christ is not raised from the dead is, is because they 
have never really experienced the cost of hoping only in Christ. You with me? They've never really experienced the cost. Now, when I say that, I, I, I want to take a minute and make sure that you understand what I'm talking about because this is an area where I think that I think it's, it gets so obscured in so much Christian preaching that it leaves people wondering if they can even be sure that they're saved. I am not talking about the cost of, of your salvation or mine. That entire cost fell on Jesus. Okay? In Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, Paul says, in Christ, you also, you Gentiles, us Jews, says, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believe that message, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a down payment of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. The parts of that are, you heard the message, you believe the message, and then God sealed you. And he sealed you, he sealed you in order to bring you into his presence and so that you will enter in one day into the fullness of your inheritance that he's, that he's made for you. The down payment of that inheritance is the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. That beautiful gift that God gave you cost you nothing. It cost you nothing. It cost Christ everything. But beloved, the moment... God made that perfect salvation yours forever. He bought you for himself with the price of Christ's blood. He bought you and now you're his. And in 1 in Corinthians 6, Paul says, do you not know that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And the Holy Spirit is, that, that dwells in you is the proof that you've been bought. All right. Paul knew that cost. Paul knew that cost. And now he says, if Jesus has not been raised and if we've hoped only in him in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. That completes the dismal picture that Paul paints of what would be true of our witness, of our faith, of our dearly departed, and of our entire earthly lives if Christ had not been raised from the dead. Then comes the but now. Nine of the most beautiful words ever heard in this world, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The answer to the terrible state of affairs that Paul charted out for us in verses 12 through 19 is that it does not exist. <laughs> Why? Because Christ has in fact been raised from the dead. And Paul knew that to be absolutely true. Now I talked about this some last week, but it's worth revisiting a little bit. Who is this guy who wrote these words? He used to go by the name of Saul of Tarsus. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. The people who cast the stones laid their Laid, laid their robes down at the feet of Saul, and Saul was in hearty approval of the, of the execution of Stephen, this, this valiant child of God. And then after that, it says that Paul had this murderous intent toward Christians, and he was going after them wherever he could find them. He had a very prestigious job 
He was the hatchet man for the Sanhedrin. He, he had been handed the task of whether he, whether he owned it himself or someone else gave it to him, he ended up with it. He ended up with documents authorizing him to carry out this task. And that was to go around and find professing Christians and then to bring them back to stand trial before the same Sanhedrin that had handed Jesus over to be executed by the Romans and demanded that execution so that they could be executed. In other words, Paul's goal was the death of lots of Christians. And he says that later too. It was a very effective job for him. It gave him power, prestige, influence. But then he uh, set out on the road to Damascus one day to do more of that same task, find some more Christians to rest. <laughs> and the resurrected Jesus blinded him and said to him, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, blinded him so that he may, might see. And he brought him out of the darkness and into the marvelous light of the Lord. And Paul was never the same. And this man who had been, he had been the, the most brazen and hateful of all enemies that you would have found against Christ and Christians now became the one through whom God lit. He, he kindled the flame of the gospel in every corner of the Roman Empire and that flame became a wildfire. The man who wrote these words, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, had been changed because he met the resurrected Christ. And he wasn't alone. There were hundreds of people who had met the resurrected Christ. I read, a, read an article just two days ago in Christianity Today, and it talks about how it's, it's, about, it's about the um, kind of the reservations of skeptics when it comes to the resurrection of Christ. It's things that skeptics have said in response to the historical information. And you know what? Person after person, some just completely disregarded. Christopher Hitchens said even Christ never existed. But most skeptics say that they can't explain away what happened to these people. They saw something that they believed was the resurrected Christ. Well, what they saw was the resurrected Christ, <laughs> and they knew it. And it, you, there's never been a mass hallucination that could fit the scenarios in the Bible, nothing even remotely like it. Anyway, we, you, you'll find lots of information about that stuff, but many people have come to faith in Christ because they looked at, at what happened in, in the Roman Empire, and they said, we can't deny this. All right, Christ has been raised from the dead and his resurrection changes everything. Our message is vindicated. Our faith is vindicated. Our sins have been taken away. Our debt to God has been paid in full. Our loved ones who died in believing in Jesus are better than fine. And all of us, all of us are among everyone in humanity, most marvelously blessed forever, all of us who have trusted in Jesus. And we haven't even mentioned yet the one benefit to Christ's resurrection that Paul has most in mind in this passage, and that is that his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Verse 20 says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, if you, if you go back in the Old Testament and you look at the dedication of the first fruits, this 
the ceremony that the Jews did annually, and then and they would come together at the central sanctuary to bring the first fruits, and they would come with their their slaves and their Levites and everybody, and they would celebrate God's kindness to them, and they would give the first and the best, the first and the best to God. And when they did so, they were to recognize that the first fruits were just just a, a token or a symbol of all the rest. It all belonged to God. The acknowledgement, it's like the offering that, that we give on Sunday mornings, we're supposed to acknowledge that all, of the, all that God fills our hand with belongs to him. We're just giving a token back to him to acknowledge that. Well, that's what the first fruits were. Paul takes that imagery, that theme, and he says, Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. He's just part of the whole. And the rest is us. What happened to him will happen to all who are in him. Verses 21 and 22, this is where Adam comes back in. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Romans 5 says, Paul says, therefore, as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. <laughs> you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. If you're in Adam, you're headed for eternal condemnation. That's how we start. If you're in Christ, you are headed for glorious resurrection, the perfection of the body to match the perfection of your redeemed soul so that you will be acquitted, you will be made qualified to dwell in the presence of our holy God for all eternity, together with all of his people. Some people teach annihilation. Annihilation is an easy out, but the Bible says nothing about it. It, it completely discards that idea. You are either headed for eternal life or eternal misery. All who trust in Jesus are made alive spiritually the moment that they put their faith in Jesus Christ and will be made alive bodily when Jesus returns to claim his own. And some of us, I don't know if it's us, but some Christians will still be standing on that day when Jesus comes back. And uh, and when we are caught up together with him in the clouds to be with him forever, 1 Thessalonians 4. It's very interesting because it won't be the ones who are still standing on the earth that go first. It will be the ones who died in Christ. They'll go first. At the voice of the archangel, the trump, sound of the trumpet, the dead will rise first. And, and first, I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 4. And we're going to finish with this. We do not want you to be, it's First Thess 4, verses 13 to 18. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And we know that those who are asleep are those who died believing in Christ. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up 
together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Loving Father, those are comfortable words indeed. The picture that Paul has set before us is that if Christ was not raised, <laughs> everything that we have believed is wrong. Our lives have been wasted. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the certainty. That is, that is the rock-solid certainty that we, that we have at the forefront of our lives and our thinking every day of our lives. Lord, Christ has been raised from the dead and it is eternally well with our souls because we have trusted only in him. We have hoped only in him in this life. Make that true of us, we ask, Father. Make, make our lives like Paul's life and the lives of so many other believers who have, they have foregone the pleasures of this earth in order to find every good thing and every perfect gift in the Father of lights and in the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We look forward to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his incomparable name that we pray. Amen.